0: Alright, right, First uh, Samuel chapter 11. So again, where we are is we are in the beginning throes of um, the first king of Israel. Now what's interesting about Samuel, I'm sorry Saul, and I'll do this a lot in this study, you guys are going to have to forgive me. I'm going to call Saul Samuel, I'm going to call Samuel Saul, I'm going to call Noah Moses, and I'm going to call Moses Abraham. Um, but you know what I mean, right? So um, the, the, as we begin the early kind of throes of the, the introduction to Saul, the first king of Israel, he's not recognized as the first king of Israel. When you, you see other places in the Bible where God says the, the, the first king of Israel and it's referring to David and you're like, wait a minute. Saul was the first king of Israel, but God never recognizes Saul as his first king. That David is, is the official one that God called and intended and, and is the rightful one. We see that, right, with, with brothers, Jacob and Esau, where the younger serves the greater. And that um, when, when God came to Abraham and he said, take now your son, your what son? Your only son up onto a mountain was Isaac, Abraham's only son. No, he was not Abraham's only son. He had another son with with Hagar, and um, his name was Ishmael. But God did not recognize Ishmael. And so God said, take now your son, your only son. And you read that, and you say, oh, hold on, God. Did you forget about the other one no i didn 't forget i don 't recognize the other one same same case with saul and david saul 's not recognized now we talked about last week that Saul becomes biblically in typology and some of the, the the pictures, word pictures, life pictures that God paints in the Old Testament. Saul is a type of the Antichrist in the bible now i 'm um, not maligning him to be an evil devil, you know although he is, but i 'm um, kidding but he um, He's not a good character in the Bible. Saul's definitely not someone we want to emulate. emulate. He's somebody that we learn what not to do. And he has a good beginning. And, and it seems like he's doing well and he's going to be a good king. And he's very humble in the beginning. And, um, and, and by the time he's done, you, you really don't like Saul in the narrative story. And to the point where he goes into the, the house of God and he murders all of the pastors well, they're not pastors, they're priests, but it's the same concept, and so I really don't like him. And, and then he consults mediums, and he gets uh, advice from the devil, and he just turns out to be a really shady, really bad guy in the Bible. Um, someone asked me, did, did Saul go to heaven? And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a question I can't answer. It's a question I don't think that I'd try to answer. I think, you know, the Bible is clear in the New Testament that when Jesus said that we're, we're not to judge unrighteously, one of the things that we're forbidden from scripturally is to judge whether someone goes to heaven or hell. We don't know. We're not the judge of that. Um, scripturally, it's, it's not our place. There, there are a couple cases where we, we know, like the one I use often is Judas Iscariot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, there's the Bible tells us he didn't make it. Okay. Saul, you would get the impression that Saul didn't make it. But again, I don't know. And I can't say dogmatically or for sure, um, whether Saul's going to, we're going to meet Saul in heaven. If, if you do see him, just go up to him and you'll be one of a trillion people that'll go up to him and say, man, I didn't know you were going to be here, (laughs) but don't worry. He's going to say, I didn't know you'd be here either. So we're even, but, um, but, but I don't know. I, I don't really don't know. I, 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 my, my gut tells me no, but again, that's not my place to judge whether Saul went to heaven or hell. But his his uh, his lifestyle and his um, choices that he made would seem that, that he did not have a relationship with God. So um, let's pick it up in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, it says, Then Nahash, the Ammonite... Um, Came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, on this condition I will make a covenant with you. So in our story here, Nahash the Ammonite is the Gentile. He's the Canaanite king, Canaanite ruler. And the men of Jabesh Gilead are the Jews. And they come to him and and they ask for basically a peace treaty during this time. And so he said, okay, I'll give you a peace treaty on these conditions. On this condition, I will make a covenant with you that I will put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all of Israel. What a sweet guy. What a sweetie. So this seems very strange to us, but maybe a common, I don't know how common, but definitely a practice. And the guy was serious. He was literally going to spoon out one of the eyeballs of their eyes and he was going to take out the right eye and um, you know it was strategic on the right eye and the reason they take the right eye out is because a soldier would hold his shield in his left hand his sword in his right hand most of Israel were um, right-handed and we have that story in judges where they where the whole tribe learns to become left-handed which was a, an anomaly being left-handed so you're right-handed you have your shield in your left hand. Your shield covers part of your left eye. You have your sword in your right hand. And with out a right eye, you're not a very good fighter. Your shield comes down. You can't defend as well. You lose your peripherals. And so it was strategic to remove their right eye. They wouldn't be able to fight back after that point. And so this this sweet king says, if I can take out your right eye, then I'll make peace with you. And the elders of Jabesh said to him, "Uh, let me think about that for a little bit. Can you give me a minute? They said, hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah and Saul and told the news and the hearing of all the people. And all the people lifted up their voice and wept. So basically, the, the uh, Nahash agrees Nahash is arrogant. He doesn't believe that anybody will come to their aid or rescue them. He's got good reason to believe that based on some past history and some things that have happened that we studied in the book of Judges. And he says, yeah, yeah, go for it. Nobody's going to come to your aid. And they said seven days. And if we can't find help, then we'll come back and and we'll agree to your terms. And then in verse five, it says, "Um, now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, "What troubles the people that they weep?" Now, what do we see Saul doing in verse five? He's coming behind the what? The herd. The herd. What happened to Saul in chapter ten? He got anointed the king of Israel. He got crowned. He got ordained or, or ordained, not ordained, uh, ordination. No, <laughs> what's that ceremony when the when the president becomes? Coronation he had his coronation already, and he was the king of, he was the king of Israel, and, and again, Saul is still in his humble beginnings, and so where, when they need him, they go to find him and he 's back at his dad 's house and he's working on the farm and he's doing chores for his dad he's working for his, his family business, his family um, the patriarch of his family, and we find him and he's with the herd and so and then he knows the people tru- people were troubled and he said, What troubles the people and why do they weep Um, So again, we... And again, I don't. I want to be careful. I think you could read through this, and if you were looking for um, Saul to be a type of the Antichrist, there's lots of little things in here you'll find that that are biblically that are accurate that you could maybe make connections to. But um, here again, we have Saul who comes on the scene, and the people in masses are are hurting and they're weeping and they're troubled, and he's going to come and save the day. Now, the Antichrist one day is going to come and save the day from a natural disaster, a natural calamity, which is going to be. The the what? The rapture of the church. The church is going to rapture, be raptured. The bunch of people are going to disappear. And the Antichrist, at that time, he will come on the scene and he will fix things. He will be a savior. He will come on and say, you know, it, he'll, he'll first of all come up with an explanation of, of what happened to the people. Um, lots of different ideas of what he'll say. And I'm sure I won't even be close, but um, it's called the lie. But um, maybe alien abduction, a mass alien abduction. And one of the reasons I think why the world and why, you know, Satan and I think, you know, wants you to believe in aliens. There's, there's a push. There's a Hollywood push. There's a worldly push. There's a you know science channel, discovery channel, and everything wants you to believe in aliens. They, they, everything is twisted in such a way that they, that they want you to believe in aliens. Maybe the Satan is going to use that so that one day he'll explain the rapture with alien abductions, mass alien abductions, could be way off. Maybe it's something much deeper that that I can't see yet, but that's a possibility. And um, so then in verse six, it says, then the spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news and his anger was greatly aroused. And he took a yoke of oxen and he cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territories of Israel by the hands of the messenger saying, whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And and the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out with consent. I think it's kind of funny. First of all, it's like it's like today, what was an auction? It'd be like your, your, your Ford F-150. And so he goes out his front yard and cuts his F-150 up and sends it around the neighborhood. And says, you know, this will happen to your truck if you don't show up to fight. And and then um, um, one, one quick highlight in, t- in verse 6. It says that Saul got angry. Now, angry and biblical, biblical is... Um, you, know, you know, there's a commandment in the Bible that I, you may not be aware of, and it says, be angry. That's a biblical commandment for you to be angry. If you're like me, you're like, I like that one. <laughs> okay, I can do that. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. And, and And the Bible talks about a righteous indignation, a righteous anger. The Bible talks about hating the things that God hates. It talks about, you know, and obviously hating sin. That, that Jesus um, displayed and gave us an example of what that verse means um, of be angry and sin not when he turned the tables over in the temple and he got angry with the people that were keeping other people from Jesus. And one of the things that you know, I've shared so many times is that you, you see pretty much every time as far as I can tell when you see Jesus get angry or in the, even in the Old Testament when the Lord gets angry, um, it almost invariably is because people are keeping other people from coming to God. People are keeping other people from coming to Jesus. That's why Jesus was angry recorded twice in the New Testament. We see that all the way through the Old Testament. Jesus said it would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest ocean than to um, cause one of these little ones to sin. And so, you know, biblically, Saul's angry, and I, I think righteously so. And there is a place and a time. But, you know, the hard part is the be angry and sin not part. You know, that's the hard part. So he took or uh, uh, verse number 8 it says and when he numbered them I'm sorry did I miss something I cut, I cut out in the middle battle so it shall be done to his oxen and then and the fear of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out with one consent and when the number of and when he numbered them in Bezach the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah thirty thousand. So wow, just with one cut up ox in Saul's first gathering of, of of his first army, he gathers three hundred and thirty thousand men to come and fight. Now, you know, obviously these men weren't and I don't know, actually, you know, how, how much training they would have went through growing up if you just, you know, as part of your growing up to do some training, to have some weapons, to, to at least know how to defend and fight. It wouldn't have been something that was uncommon. The, the, the people of Israel were a warring people. They were a fighting people. They, 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 they entered many battles. The same group of people that... You know that lived through the life of Joshua and the conquest through the book of Joshua and and, and judges would have been you know uh, 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 at, at many times in their history of warring people but this this army shows up that it wasn't an army really it wasn't necessarily organized and trained. But they, they were there. They were in mass numbers. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. So the word got back to them against Nahash, the Ammonite king, and they, that they would have help against him. And so by the time the sun was hot, and it says verse 11, So on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed the Ammonites. Until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered. So that not two of them were left together. So they went in pretty swift. And before the sun got hot. They started the fight in the morning. And before the sun got hot. The men of, um, of um, Nahash the Ammonite were destroyed. They were killed. Now it says here that, that the men of Israel killed. The word in my Bible is killed. Is that what it says in your Bible verse 11? Killed the Ammonites. You know, I I, I talk about this from time to time, so maybe it gets old. But um, the Bible says thou shalt not kill, right? Doesn't the Bible say thou shalt not kill? Isn't it the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. Um, Recorded in in most of our Bibles, it's thou shalt not kill. But the word is actually several words for kill. And the word in the Ten Commandments is specifically thou shalt not what? Murder. Murder. Now, now, there's a difference between killing and murdering. And I know that is troubling for some people in semantics, but it is the reality. And what's forbidden is thou shalt not murder. And so, you know, oftentimes we see where God calls his people to engage in war. You know, I have many, many friends who um, are are Marines and we've been in war for the last 10 years. And, you know, in wartime, I am not exaggerating to say, you know, I have a dozen friends that have engaged and and taken lives in combat, and and so for every one of them, you know the I wouldn't say the struggle, you know, because actually, to be honest, a lot of my Marine friends don't struggle with with what they they had to do. They, I mean, you want to they want to cross that T and dot that I of morality and just that, but you know, they signed up and they knew what they signed up for, and and that you know it's not it's they're, they're Christians, they love Jesus and and that they're they're not guilty of murder that they're they're soldiers and and so i I think that's biblical I think that's that's god's command and and again you know you you see it so many times through the Bible where God commands to fight to defend you know and I, and I also don't think that you you could argue very well that that jesus was was a was some kind of passive and that Jesus was, you know, n- was, was feminine and, and didn't, wouldn't defend himself or wouldn't fight or that he wasn't, you know, the thing I point out is that, um, in the garden of Gethsemane, what did, what did Peter have on his, on his hip? It was probably a pretty sharpened sword too, right? Like, you know, when when, 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 when Peter was was in the garden sleeping, you know, and Jesus said, you should have been praying, you know, instead of sharpening your sword. But, but the, the point is that in today's, by today's economy, maybe that was a, you know, a firearm on his hip. It's a sword. It's a weapon that he carried on his hip. And after three years of being with Jesus, if Jesus didn't want him to have a sword on his hip, he wouldn't have had a sword on his hip. If Jesus was not okay with peter and and there was um some morality that that jesus didn't want him to carry a sidearm you know he wouldn't have carried it it would have been no problem but jesus knew he had it jesus allowed him to have it so i i think that would suggest that jesus was okay that he had it and 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 then after jesus died and rose again one of the things he told the disciples to do was to get a sword and so again and i'm not promoting violent we're not to be violent people where, you know, the Bible says turn the other cheek. The Bible says if someone slaps you on one one cheek, turn to them the other also. The reason for that is is for your ability to um, share the gospel with them for big picture. Because if getting slapped on the other cheek means that the person who slapped you could get saved, then you turn the other cheek and you let them slap you on the other cheek because you keep your witness and you have the ability and you see a big picture of, of them getting saved. But at the same time, you, you have, we have the ability to defend ourselves. Somebody breaks in your house, they're going to hurt your family. You have the right to defend yourself biblically. Amen? All right. Um, so then it says um, in verse number, where are we at? 12? 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them out that we may put them to death. You know, people are so fickle all the way through history. But if you look at back at chapter 10 and verse 27, after um, Samuel, or Saul's coronation, we see, but some of the rebels said, how can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. So, so they didn't receive Saul as the king, but Saul held his peace at the time. And now, now all of a sudden the people are like, where are those guys that, that didn't want Saul to be the king after Saul brought them this big victory, this swift battle over the Ammonite um, king? And they said, let's get those men who wouldn't receive Saul and let's put them to death. And in verse 13, Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. And then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal, There they made sacrifices of peace, offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And then in chapter 12, it says, Now Samuel said to to all of Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice in all that you have said to me. So now we're talking about Samuel the prophet, and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed, and look, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. So one of the things about Samuel is that his sons um, did not walk in the ways of their father. We, we, we read that already, that Samuel, for whatever reason, unfortunately, his sons didn't follow in their dad's footsteps. They weren't following the Lord. They, they weren't able to, to lead the nation of Israel um, pro- prophetically and, and as a prophet. You know, but one of the things that I like here is that Samuel says, you know, basically, my son's are not walking with the Lord. They're they're going through a season of rebellion. And I think that, you know, sometimes we expect or we feel like, uh, you know, that it's normal for our kids to go through a season of rebellion and then they'll come back, you know? But I I don't think that we should ever settle for that. I mean, yes, that happens, but again, it shouldn't be the norm. It shouldn't be something we settle for. It definitely should not be the goal that that, that kids are gonna go through a season of rebellion and come back, you know? and, And then we have Samuel who gives testimony of himself, and Samuel is somebody whose life was born through prayer. He he his mother prayed and begged God he was born, he was literally given to God at a young age. Samuel began to serve the Lord since he was a boy. He stayed loyal to God all the way through his life. You know the things I try to encourage my boys with and it's hard what what to know, you know, what what actually makes sense to them or not or what'll motivate them or not. But I've I've always told them that you, if you look at different ministries and different pastors and different leaders, um, there is a special anointing for those that never walked away from the Lord. Not to say God is not gracious and that God is not forgiving. And, and the Bible says God restores the years the locusts have eaten. And in my life, I went through years that the locust ate a lot of my life. And I, and I turned over seven years of my life to Satan. And, um, and, and at the grace of God, I came back at 20. But you know, even in my own life in ministry, that, that's seven years that, that God forgave and healed. But it, it, it definitely, I lost blessing. I lost an opportunity. You, you know, you look at, uh, I don't know, I have, I have a couple of pastors that I, I really like and, you know, look up to young guys who are just doing big things for Jesus and ones that never really walked away from the Lord. And they just were true. There are pastors' kids who just, just stay true to God their whole their whole ministry. And and again, not to say God can't do something in somebody's life, but definitely the call is bigger, the anointing is bigger, the power's bigger, the opportunity's bigger, if you never walk away from the Lord. And, and it's just it's lived out. It's it's fleshed out all all around. And so we would encourage that. Samuel had that testimony. And then again, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to how to how to unpack this for Samuel that his boys didn't walk with the Lord. You know, was he a bad dad? Was you know, is it just that thing? I mean, I, I don't know. It's hard. Lot, lots and of, lots, of, lots of good biblical men um, have children that that end up not walking with the Lord. My main takeaway from that is that, that each one of us have a choice, and that your kids have a choice. And we have to try to present the gospel. And I think Jesus in such a way that our kids want to walk with him, you know. And, 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 and I don't want to make an excuse by saying everybody has a choice, that because everybody has a choice that, you know, when we have rebellious kids that all of a sudden that's okay too. I'm not saying that, you know, and my kids are young. It's yet to be yet to be determined where my kids are gonna walk and 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 what's gonna happen with them. But always pray for the best. So then we go. Verse three. It says, Here I am, witness against me before the Lord and bore his anointed. Whose ox whose ox have I taken? This is Samuel talking to the people, giving testimony of himself. So he took nothing, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe, which to blind my eyes I will restore it to you? And they said, You have not cheated us, or oppressed us, or have taken you have taken anything from any man's hand. And so. Um, Samuel has, again, a good testimony before the Lord, before the people. And they said, and he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointing anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they answered, he is witness. And then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did before your fathers. One of the one of the tactics in in life and in ministry and in um, in raising up people is reminding us of the blessings and what God has done in our past. And you know, I think we would be wise to keep a journal. I really do. I think there's so many things in our life that, that we forget. And, and just like the nation of Israel, when we read the story of how they, they would walk through the Red Sea on dry land and see the entire Egyptian army drowned. They were led by a, a, a cloud of, um, fire at night and a pillar of smoke the other way around pillar of smoke in the day. And, um, you know, and then and, and manna would appear on the ground. The the rock would open up and water would come out. And they lived this life of seeing these miracles. And five minutes later, didn't trust God over some little thing in their life. And you're so frustrated reading it. Like, don't you remember all these amazing things that God did in your life? And And... That's that's a value for each one of us to remember those things. But we, like the ch- children of Israel, as frustrated as we can get with them for their lack of trust after what they've been through, I think we can be the same way a lot of times. And maybe to journal some of the things, some of the blessings, some of the good things, some of the amazing things that the Lord has done in your life as you go through. That when you get discouraged or you're having a hard time trusting the Lord moving forward on something, that you can go back. And so Samuel is, again, which happens again throughout the entire Bible, Paul used the same tactic. Peter um, in in the Pentecost, all the way through the Bible, it's great with your children, it's great with your friends, it's great with your family to constantly be reminded of the goodness of God, the provision of God. And again, as I've told us many times, one of the main main themes of the entire Bible is that you can trust God, is that God can be trusted. It's 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 written for that purpose. One of the purposes is that, to, that you can trust God. You can trust God in your life. You have testimony. You have no reason that you cannot trust God completely with every part of your life. And it says, now therefore, in verse. I read that. Verse 8, it says, when Jacob had gone, he's going to rehearse their history for him. When Jacob had gone into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out, to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel and delivered them out of the hand. Jerubbabel is who? You guys remember who that is? It's Gideon. Out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, and whom you have desired, and take note, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve him, And obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your father's. That, that kind of promise that we see there in verse 15 is, is repeated again many times in the Bible with an if clause. If you do this, God will bless. If you do that, God will curse. God will not be there. God, or Not that he won't be there, but God will not do the things he would do if you follow in obedience. But if you follow in obedience, there's blessing. If you disobey, there's cursing. And now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call the Lord and he will send under the rain thunder and rain that you may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking a king for yourselves. So the entire um, just process of them asking for a king was a great wickedness to the lord it was a rebellion it was a rejection of god it was a rejection of the prophets it was not god's will it was not god's intent that they would have a king Um, it was god's intent that they would be a theocracy they would be a nation ruled by god and and they rebelled against that the reason why they rebelled against it was because they didn't trust that the lord would take care of them (laughs) crazy right like like that's the whole catalyst of the whole thing is that you can trust that God's going to take care of you. And again and again and again, as much as God does in our lives, in their lives, to show us, to love us, to prove to us that he will take care of you. You can trust him, but we, we, we continually get to that place where we just, we don't trust him. And they didn't trust him, and, and that lack of trust was a great wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. And it says um, in verse 18, so Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Was that today? Did that happen today? And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. And then Samuel said to the people, do not fear, you have done all this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for when then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. You you can be angry with the Lord, and you can turn away. But the the, the simple and the easy question and the honest question is Where are you going to go? You're mad at God? You're mad at your circumstance? Where are you going to go? God, I'm through. I'm angry. I'm mad. That's wrong. I'm done with you. Okay, I, I feel for your, your, your broken heart. But the, the reality check for you is where are you going to go? There's nowhere to go. So you're going to run and, and serve Satan? I mean, it's, it's black or white. And this is kind of the reality that Samuel gets, gives them. Now, again, as with the Lord, the invitation remains for them to stay and serve the Lord. I mean, after somebody just said you've done great wickedness and asking for a king and you've rebelled and, you know, you almost think like what's coming next is now get out of my face. But that's not what God says. He says you've been wicked, you've rebelled, but continue to serve the Lord. God will continue to be gracious to you. God will continue to give you another chance. God will continue to receive you as his own. God will forgive you. God will work. God will, you know, and there's always that invitation. Until you breathe your last, there's continual invitation for you to come to God. To come, 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 come to the Lord. And so even in God's graciousness and even in God's anger, he's inviting his people to come, to not forsake. Samuel gives them the reality check in 21 that, you know, if you do go aside, you're going to chase empty things. They, they can't profit you. They can't deliver. They're nothing. And then in verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. <clears throat> I always trip on that verse right there. That it's pleased the Lord to make you His people. Like, like it's a good reminder for me that God, God is not like stuck with us. That, that God is He. He loves you. That and, and and the part of the that He loves you that's revolutionary is that He likes you that He cares about you. Like He's pleased to make you His people. He He adopted you, which means He chose you. You're You're fully known and fully loved, and and God has made a conscious choice and that that it's his pleasure to make you his people. And, you know, again, you think like, like God is totally justified in getting rid of these people. God is totally justified in, you know, not receiving them anymore. Like they've made a choice. They've, they've obviously made their bed so he can say, go lay in it. But he never does that never does that he always gives him that invitation not only that then he then he comes back and he encourages him by telling him look even in all of this i'm pleased for you to be my people i want you to be my people i love you as my people and he cares for him as a father just the same way in the old testament that he does in the new testament god is the same yesterday today and forever his love his heart hasn't changed and then we come to our verse of the night and it says um In verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. So 23 says, the people said, you know, will you pray for us? Will you continue to pray for us? Or will you, you know, don't stop praying for us, Samuel. And Samuel said, far be it for me that I would sin against the Lord by stopping to, by, by not praying for you anymore, by ceasing to pray for you. That, that, that it's insinuated. I think it's taught here that for the prophet, for, for him not to pray for the people is sin. You know, when we, when we try to, you know, describe sins, we talk about two categories of sins, sins of omission and sins of commission. You can sin by something that you commit. You commit a sin. You, you got drunk. The Bible says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. That's a sin. You committed a sin. Um, you you got angry and you sinned. That's a sin. Your anger lashed out and you lashed out into sin. It's a sin you committed. A sin of omission is not doing something that you're supposed to or you're called to do. So by not praying for the people, it's a sin of, of, of omission. And so Samuel here recognizes and he says that that it's, that it's his call of God. It's actually even sin for him not to be praying for the people. And, and you know, I was convicted by this today. I was just convicted that... Um, You know, first of all, encouraged, I want to say, and I wanted to encourage us as a church tonight, was to be a people that pray. I've tried to stress that for five years. We've tried to commit to that, and hopefully we can continue to go back to it, continue to be reminded of it. But we have to be a people who pray. We we have to develop, you know, the ability and the, the desire to pray. It's not a have to, it's a get to, but it's absolutely a necessity in our walk, in our success, in our life that we pray. And I'll tell you, praying is like anything. It's, it practice makes perfect, and praying, if it's difficult or if it's laborious or if it's it's hard in the beginning, um, it gets easier. It gets longer. It gets more intimate. It gets um, more, you know. Where where you commune with the Lord, you hear from the Lord, you 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 can talk to the Lord a little bit easier, and you continue to grow in that ability and that skill. And God will absolutely bless it if you desire to pray and communicate with God. But I think we have to be intentional in our prayer life. I think that we have to, you know, have some time. Maybe an alarm you set on your phone that goes off at a at a good time for you every day, just to remind you to stop and pray. Jesus said, "When you go into your room, lock the door." And then pray to your father in secret and where, you know, your father and see when your father sees you in secret, he'll reward you openly. And so that that it was expected that we pray. And so, you know, every great um, move of God, every great person, if you go through all of history and you look at the amazing people that God used, um, every one of them to the man was a person of prayer it's it's a it's a characteristic that, that not one of them lack because it's something that, that's necessary in those that God use, that we be a people who pray. And Samuel was a people who pray, um, you know, even more than teaching the Word of God. I think people think that's crazy, you know, that the time to pray. And one, I think it's one of the things probably in America that, um, I don't know why I say in America, but in the church, that, that we don't do so well, myself included. You know, I th- I could spend three, four hours preparing a sermon, um, studying, and half an hour praying. That should be the other way around. You know, it, 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 I mean, prayer really is more important than the, and not to say, the Bible says, study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not as- not be ashamed. but But not without prayer. Nothing's going to happen without prayer. Prayer is not for me. It's, it, I mean, it's not for God. It's for me. It, it doesn't change God. It changes me. It, it connects me to God. It helps me hear the voice of God. It's so that God's will is done on earth. God's will is done in my life. But again, praying for each other, praying for, for um, people in your circle, praying for your kids, praying for your family, praying for your enemies, as Jesus said, praying for the people in your church, praying for the people you work with, praying for the, the people, you know, just who that God puts on your heart. Speaking of that, Lydia asked me to pray for Greg, so don't let me forget, we'll pray for Greg. Um, so we got to be a people who pray. Pray, pray, pray. And then listen, Samuel said, and I think it's intentional in verse 23 that he says, I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. So there's a place for teaching as the prophet to, to teach the good in the right way. But, but I think intentionally prayer and then teaching. And again, you know, we 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 spend 45 minutes a, a a week teaching and five minutes praying. And I guarantee you, if I spent 30 minutes praying and 20 minutes teaching, half of you wouldn't come back next week. And that's just the way it goes. It's just how we are culturally. And it's not a dig on anybody. But, you know, the least attended meeting nationally in the church is the church prayer meeting. And I, I forget what the numbers are. I could just make some up because all stats are made up anyways. And I just made that up. So, um but it really is the least attended meeting in the church, you know, and, and I can testify here. We, we don't have now, currently, and we do in different seasons, uh, a, a meeting that's specifically for people to come and pray. But when we did, it's the least attended meeting. You know, it was most important for me. I always did it because it was, it was for me, you know. And a lot of Sundays when we first started, it was just me and Carl. And, um, you know, we'd sit on a Sunday night and pray and spend an hour and talk and gossip about all the people that didn't come and, um, but it was fun. It was cool. You know, it was good for me, you know, and, uh, and so, but anyways, I just want to encourage us as a church. We got to be a church of praise and I don't know how to, how to make it practically happen, but you know, there are some ways, there's some gimmicks too. We can start some gimmicks. Like we'll get like a lipstick on a pig or something. I don't know. All right. never Let's pray. Samuel said, pray. He said, it's a sin not to pray. I believe that it's a sin not to pray. I believe that, you know, the Bible says, this is what the Bible says about prayer in the New Testament. It says, pray without, anybody know? Pray without ceasing. Any of you guys got that one down? (laughs) None of us, right? So, uh, So we got some work to do. Pray without ceasing. All right. All right. Then we're almost done. Two verses. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart for consider what great things he has done for you. So verse 24 says only fear the Lord. There's a comma. I think we can understand that with a period. Only fear the Lord. So listen, as a concept in your life is if you only fear God, then, then everything changes. There's only one thing you fear and it's not man's reaction. It's not, um, you know, not your circumstance. It's not your, 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 your boss came in today and said layoffs are coming and you're afraid of, of this. You're afraid of that. There's nothing in life to fear. Only fear the Lord. Peter got out of the boat. Everything was great until he began to fear the waves. And, and the waves demanded attention. Those waves and the circumstance that was around Peter's life, as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus and he began to fear his circumstance, that's when he sank. That's the amazing um, story of, of Peter walking on water. I always like to give credit Peter credit, though. He is the only other person in human history besides Jesus who walked on water. I, I was thinking about that story the other day, and I was thinking, you know, I wonder if there's things that are like not recorded in the Bible. Like, did, did for fun sometimes Jesus and the disciples go out on the boat and he let a couple more of them get out and run on the water and have some fun? Or just kind of, yeah, I mean, they had time, right? Like, maybe they went wake surfing or something. Who knows? And Jesus created it or, well, I don't know. But they, So, um, fear the Lord, only fear the Lord. And, and then you have nothing else to fear. And then it says, and serve him in truth with all your heart. I love the word all your heart. We, we highlighted that on our message on Sunday. that Because it's something that's repeated so many times in the Bible. That if you fear the Lord, or that if you love the Lord, if you serve the Lord, it's, it's to be done with all your heart. With all your heart. And that God will honor what you do with all your heart. You can't miss God. You can't miss his will when you do it with all your heart. And then he says, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your kings. The final warning on the if clauses that we find. But if, but if, but if, but if, but if. So, you know, there's a, a, a convicting little little uh, um, thing that, that I've heard a couple times pastors say. And I, I like it. I think it's true. But, you know, I'll throw it out tonight for us. But it, it, it's, it goes like this. How, how would our church be if everybody in our church had the same prayer life that you have? How would our church be if everybody in our church gave what you gave? How would our church be if everybody in our church served the way that you serve? How would our church be if everybody in our church... What's left? Loved the way that you love. There we go. What else? That was good. Anybody else think of anything? Loved, prayed, worshipped. So just the, the, those things, the thought, you know. It, and it's not meant to be discouraging or convicting. It's just meant to be encouraging, to challenge ourselves in those areas of love, of giving, of of worshipping, of of reading. There's another one. We didn't talk about that. How much you read, how much time you spend in prayer. And, and again, you know, like, the other thing is, like, the the... You know, there's always that, that pastor, that sermon you're hearing, and he's being very sincere and very serious. And he says, you know, I, I got up this morning at four o'clock and after my 10 mile run, I, I began to pray this morning and, and, and I prayed till the sun came up and I opened my Bible and I read until noon and I read 47 chapters and he's being very serious. And you're thinking, man, that guy gets up in the morning and he prays for three hours, reads his Bible for three hours. I haven't opened my Bible in three days. I'm a terrible Christian. And, you know, I was like, so I like, I never wanted to be that guy. Like, cause that's just not a reality. Nobody does that. Right. Like, you know, some days I read a verse a day, you know, and other days I try to do better, but, um, but you know, you don't want to send that message. Right. Like, like that, that, cause it's not reality. It's just not, it's not encouraging. It doesn't encourage anybody, you know, and you need to be encouraged. So not, not that it's intended to, to discourage, but, just to be a reality check that just for each one of us to look in the mirror and encourage us to pray, to give, to read, to love, to serve, to worship. Amen? Amen. All right, let's stand. Father God, I come before you, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, I, I pray, Lord, for your blessing upon each one of us in here tonight, God. Lord, I love you, and, and Lord, we, we want to serve you. God, help us to pray. Lord, help, us not, help it not to be a, a thing that we have to do and a hard thing and something that we're, we're, we're guilted by, Lord, but just a real-life experience, a real-life treasure that, that we are a people that spend time praying each day. Lord, it's a call. It's a gift. It's something that will bless us. It's something that's for us. It's not against us. It's not a have to. It's a, it's a life changer. It's a, it's, it's a power builder. Lord, it's an equipper. And so, Lord, help us to pray. Lord, help us to, to, to spend some time. And whether that just be a few minutes every day and, and, and whether that be an hour every day and it turns into two every once in a while or whatever it be. And again, Lord, even if it's just a moment, help us to, to be intentional about our prayer lives. God, help us to be intentional about, about devotions, but not to, be, not to live in a way that we're, we're under it all the time or we feel like we're, we're not as good of a Christian because we don't read as much or we don't pray as much. But that every day we would just look to you and, and be encouraged to, to seek your face each day through prayer, through reading the word, through loving people, through serving, through worshiping, through giving. And God, that you would bless in Jesus' name. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.